Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have a special guest today, Barnabas Piper, who's written a fascinating book, unusual, uh, maybe unique called The Pastor's Kid, published by David C. Cook, just came out. Barnabas, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on with you and appreciate the uh, the chance to talk about this and uh, and let people know a little bit about the, uh, the book. Now, you work for what is called the Ministry Grid, which is a part of Lifeway Christian Ministries uh, in Nashville, related to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, tell us That's just a l- little bit about your work there, what you're doing with them. Absolutely. Uh, Ministry Grid is uh, a church leadership training platform, so it's all web-based and video-based. Uh, it is LifeWay's uh, effort to provide training for church leaders and to give church leaders a tool to train volunteers and staff members um, built around the the concepts of leaders developing leaders for the health of the church. Now, now your book that we're going to talk about is called The Pastor's Kid. So tell us about who your parents are and how you became a pastor's kid. Yes, absolutely. Um, my dad is John Piper, uh, so author of Desiring God. Uh, he pastored Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis for just over 33 years. Uh, he retired on uh, Easter of 2013 was his last Sunday there, uh, which was also my 30th birthday. So uh, my entire life was spent as a pastor's kid, um, and with a with a father who, especially later on in my time, uh, my time at the church, and then through my college years and later, he he gained quite a bit of national notoriety, and people you know people recognized the name. Earlier on in my time there, he was more of just a local pastor. But So that's the context I grew up in, uh, a church that started at about three or 400 people when I was really little, and by the time I left was between two and 3,000. It's grown to about 4,000 now. So had you know, kind of had a chance to experience moderate to smaller church uh, context as well as larger church. And so, yeah, that's that's where I came from. Your dad, John Piper, has been to Beeson several times, and he will be known to almost all of our listeners, surely through his writings and maybe having heard him at a conference or something. So he he's he's what we could, I think, legitimately call, no aspersions on him, a celebrity preacher. Now, be, being his kid, does that make you a celebrity kid? <laughs> uh, not by choice. It does mean that I get recognized, and it opens some doors, and uh, it probably closes others. But I tend to introduce myself just by my first name, uh, so that with the effort of giving people an impression of who I am before they figure out who my parents are, it doesn't always work. But that's my goal, just to kind of gain a gain a sense of personhood as opposed to just having a label put on me. Now, I want to get to the question of why you wrote this book. But before we do that, I want to ask you to talk about the way in which you open the book is is with an analogy to the life of a preacher's kid and that of a pressure cooker. What do you mean by that? The way that pressure cookers work is that they, because of the pressure applied to whatever food is inside them, it raises the cooking temperature. So water boils instead of at, uh, what is it, 211, 212 degrees normally. It boils at closer to 250 in a pressure cooker. 
um, which means that things tend to cook a whole lot faster. The the reason I use the analogy is because um, pastors' kids are are just like every other kid. They are we are normal people. We are prone to mistakes. We are sinners. We are in need of God's grace. We are fun loving. We're gifted. We're a lot of. I mean, we're just just the whole scope of humanity is represented in pastors' kids. But the context of ministry is such that it functions like like a pressure cooker. You take a normal substance, and instead of having the average pressures, it has an increased pressure so that it it brings pastor's kids to that quote-unquote boiling point more quickly. What That might be spiritual, that might be lifestyle, that might be um, losing touch with the church or becoming disenchanted. Or, it, you know, for a lot of pastor's kids, it's just a... There's it's a set of expectations and it and it doesn't have negative effects. It, it goes both ways. But the reason I use the analogy is just because of the increased pressure on an essentially normal person. Now, is part of the pressure the fact that people assume church members assume that the preacher's kids will just automatically behave better and be a model for the other kids and children in the church. Is that part of the pressure you're talking about? That is, that, yeah, the expectations of, of uh, proper and moral behavior are definitely a part of it. The irony of it is, though, that uh, while there is the expectation of, pre- uh, of perfect behavior, there's also the expectation of failure. Pastors' kids are known as screw-ups. You know, there's it's sort of a we have sort of a, a collective reputation of being troublemakers or you know you get people like Katy Perry and some of these other prominent people who have very boldly left behind their their faith roots um so you get so it's the double expectation of you ought to be perfect because you're the pastor's kid and we expect you to fail because you're the pastor's kid. So it's it, it, it creates a bit of a conundrum of exactly what am I supposed to do, be perfect or fail miserably? I'm not exactly sure how where I'm supposed to land this thing. Yeah, you talk in the book about an assumption, I suppose, made by a lot of church members. The, the, the pastor's kid has a pastor for a dad. His mom leads the women's ministry or this or that or the other. Uh, so what could I, as just a normal congregant, offer this person? And so maybe there's a little standoffishness or something, and and you kind of come against that and will say there are a lot of things that average people in the congregation can offer the preacher's kid. Uh, say a little bit about what they are. I think I think what you know the term average congregant, just a committed church member, somebody who's who's just part of the church community, is essential in the life of the pastor's kid. And I mean, in the life of the pastor's family as a whole, but speaking specifically of pastor's kids, because. They are outside the limelight. They live whatever a normal person life is, and so they can bring to bear the perspective of what does it look like to be a faithful disciple and be a faithful friend. Pastors' kids just need normal friends, you know, not not people who are connected to them because they are a pastor's kid, but people who are connected to them because they care about, in my case, just who Barnabas is. And I, I was blessed to have a couple mentors and a handful of really close friends who just were my friends and, and many of them continue to be to this day. The one instance, and I'll just, I'll tell this story because I think it's uh, I think it helps explain what a normal church member can do for a pastor's kid. When I was about 16 or 17 years old, um, I was actively involved in the youth group, but was also kind of constantly battling the expectations and pushing back and just generally being a bit of a pain 
to uh, to those in authority because I just didn't like the expectations being placed on me. And a guy named Shay McCowan, uh, who was a, a youth group leader, so he's probably seven or eight years older than I was at the time, he pulled me aside one day and he said, hey, let's go do lunch after church. So I went with him. We went to TGI Fridays in downtown Minneapolis. And he sat me down and we were talking and he just said, Barnabas, he said, you, he said, you have all the potential to be a leader and you're gifted and you're wasting it by by your attitude and you're not stepping up to the plate. And he just talked to me straight and he was not at all cowed by the fact that my last name is Piper or that my dad was the pastor. He spoke to me as somebody who he cared about, as somebody who he saw potential in and he wanted to see grow up to be something better. And he and so it it in it it spoke to me because he did not he didn't beat around the bush worried about the fact that this is this is a special quote unquote kind of kid. He just said this is a kid who needs my advice. I have something to offer him and I'm going to speak it. And it was and it sticks it sticks with me to today uh and that that is an instance of what pastors kids can use from normal congregants in the context of trust and relationship. Now, growing up in the Twin Cities, uh, you were obviously a baseball fan, the Minnesota Twins. I'm a baseball fan, too. It's the only sport I actually enjoy following. But there was a particular twin, Kirby Puckett, that you write about. Uh, Tell us that story. Yeah, Kirby Puckett was my, uh, well, continues to be my favorite baseball player. He's he's passed away now. Um, But... When I was growing up, so I, I grew up in downtown Minneapolis, just a few blocks from the Metrodome where the Twins played, and so I, I was a regular at Twins games. And Kirby was their center fielder when I was growing up. He was a short, squat little guy who just played his heart out, and he was really good as well. But but it was the way that he played the game with just this effusive energy and happiness. And I was a fairly short, stout kid at the time as well, so I just I felt a kinship with this sort of hard-playing, teddy bear type of guy. And I just I projected the image of the happy-go-lucky, hard-playing uh, guy onto him as a person. And so when it came out several years later, when I was maybe in my teens or in college, that he was a fairly well-known philanderer and had uh, had been accused of uh, assaulting a couple women, it uh, it really it really knocked him off a pedestal that I had set him up on, that I didn't have any reason to set him up on. I was in my mind he was an honorable figure because he played baseball a certain way. So I was I had misplaced my expectations from baseball to life and was then extra disappointed because of it. So in a way, that illustration also goes to the distinction, the difference between kind of inner character and outward position or profile. And that's something that cuts across all disciplines, of course. But in a way, uh, the way we understand the pastoral office and its importance in the life of the congregation person called by God who is to model all this kind of integrity in their family life as well as in their preaching professional life, uh, this becomes couldn't become a part of the pressure cooker that you're talking about. So that's a, quite a story. The, the, the letdown, the disappointment, uh, the shattering of an ideal uh, with Kirk, Kirby Puckett, and it can happen to anyone. Now, here's, here's a hard question, I think. Should a pastor require his son or daughter, his child, 
to attend church and to be active in the church youth group? Yeah, that is that is a tough question. I think it's in part it's tough because of the way it's phrased. Um, the the word require can can be heard as sort of a legalistic uh, demand, and that especially when dealing with adolescents and, and young people, it's just it's not helpful. It doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't communicate well. So saying you know I demand that you attend church is, is not going to maybe you'll get them to go because of authority, but it's not going to make them want to go. What comes to mind though is setting the expectation that church is a vital part of our life. It is what it's God's intent for community and for corporate worship, and it plays a role in our own development as people, and it's where a lot of our strongest relationships come from. And so you, you create a—the the pastor should do this in his own home, and I mean other parents should too, but you create an expectation that church is, church is essential, and that's why we go. And so the requirement is not based on you go because it's the right thing to do, or you go because I tell you to, but you go because it's God's design for our, your well-being. And um, and I think one of the things that that parents, especially, I have two daughters myself now; they're eight and five years old, and so I'm, you know, every day is is a learning experience for me. But one of the things I try to keep in mind is I don't ever want to tell my kids to do something without being able to explain to them why it's important for them to do it. And church, church falls into the same category. So should should a pastor require it? Uh, yes, on the grounds of why it's so important and so valuable for his teenager, not just as a, a law in and of itself. Now here's another question kind of related to that, but of course you're a young fellow, 30 years old, right, or so? And I'm 31 uh, now, thir- yes. 31. Would you be giving the same advice, and would the same issues related to preacher's kids be involved, say, in your grandfather's generation, or even your dad when he was growing up? Uh, is this a generational sensitivity, or is this something that kind of cuts across the the timeline? That is a very, very uh, interesting question. I, in my interactions, I mean, I had a chance to interact with, with dozens of different pastors' kids. Some, some in the baby boomer generation, so my my parents' generation, and some, you know, all the way down to my generation and and uh, younger. And I do see. When when you talk about the pressures and the expectations placed on pastors' kids, that seems to cut across kind of all generations. How people respond to it varies from generation to generation. I'd say my generation, I'm on the older end of the millennial generation, um, but but still pretty firmly part of it. I'd say the millennial generation tem- tends to be the most sort of self-aware and in tune with what my feelings are and how this has hurt me and things like that. Same with Gen Xers, that that, that group sort of 10 to 15 years older than us. Um, Whereas I I think the baby boomer generation didn't tend to respond with quite the same, I don't want to say self-awareness, but the same sort of introspection. And so the response was like my generation might be more inclined to say, I was hurt, I'm leaving, which I don't think is a helpful response. The baby boomer generation might have thought, I'm hurt, and I'm just going to just bottle it up and deal with it, which also might not be helpful because neither of them are actually resolving the issue. It's just two different responses to the same problem. Now, you have several siblings, I believe, right? Three or four brothers and sisters. So I have two children. I have a son and a daughter. I love them both dearly. They're very different, and I've, you know— 
tried to learn how to relate to them differently. So would you advise sort of pastors and pastors' wives relating to uh, siblings of a f- the same family who may be very different in some ways? Do you have a one-on-one strategy, or is there one policy fits all kids? I think a, I think a moral policy fits all kids. You know, if there are how you how you draw the lines on on moral issues. Uh, you know, if you you find out your kids are drinking in high school, things that are illegal, or things that that you have just set up as these are things that we have said are are out of bounds. There has to be a singular response to those things. Um, but even that can vary to the degree that one kid, you know, say if the kids are very young, one kid might respond better to timeouts and one kid might respond better to a spanking. I mean, those are those are the kinds of things that the parents have to figure out on their own. How are they getting through to the heart of their kids and how are they leading a child to repentance? In terms of leading the children through the the pressures of being a pastor's kid and the relationship to church, I think that has to be done one-on-one because you get children who bottle up all their emotions and they will never reveal anything to their parents. And then you get children who wear everything on their sleeves and you have children who just sort of drift away and others who rebel uh, outwardly and some who are passionately engaged and absolutely love the church and love Christ. And, and so that that's an enormous burden on a parent to figure out how do you how do you try to interact uniquely with the one who has the hard shell, the one who's distant, the one who's passionate, the one who's rebellious? But that has to be done in the context of a singular relationship with the individual child. Now, in your book, you, you write, uh, and this is, I think, again, a, a tricky and difficult thing for pastors to do. You say what a what a PK needs is parents who not only admit to being sinners, but who actually admit to sins, and I, yes. I'm assuming you mean admit to their children' sins. Explain what you mean by this. There's a significant difference uh, between me saying I am a sinner or I'm not perfect, which I think just about anybody would say, and and me going to my daughter and saying I apologize for losing my temper at you. I apologize for the way that I disrespected you or was unkind to you or the way that I spoke to your mother unkindly in front of you. And I, you know, apologize both to mom and to her. And so the reason I made that point was because pastors are under, pastors are under just as much pressure or more pressure than pastors' kids to, to, to be morally superior in a sense. And so it's very it's hard sometimes to bridge the gap between that expectation and the humility of I'm sorry for whatever specific act I did wrong. But children need to see that because that that's a that's a relational connecting point between the child and the parent and the child and God because it breeds a context of grace and forgiveness and it allows it allows the child to know that if I make a mistake, when I make a mistake, because it's inevitable, when I sin, I can I can apologize to Dad. I can repent to Dad, and Dad will forgive me because that is the that is the the way that this interaction has worked between him and me and us and God. And so it's instead of just the general concept of sin and forgiveness, you do it on a case an instance by instance basis to show this is how forgiveness and repentance work. I want to come back to the question I started with, and we've we've kind of dealt with this a little bit, but why did you write this book, Barnabas? 
It's a, uh, that's a, that's a, a broad question. And I wrote it. There's, there's a handful of pieces to it. One is that, um, it was a burden in my own life that just grew to the place where, um, it seemed like it had to come out. You know, I have to, I have to do this. And then the piece that confirmed it was looking around and going, there's nothing out there for pastor's kids yeah. or for pastors for that matter in the specific relationship with their kids. There are books on pastor's families yeah. and on pastor's wives. And I'm, you know, that's not a world I live in necessarily. So I'm not as familiar with how exactly how helpful those are, but there's nothing useful, really nothing at all for pastors and kids. So there was a, there's a vacuum and what what spurred me to write it was um, early in 2012, I was asked to write an article, fairly short article, eight to 900 words um, for a magazine um, on helping, helping congregants know how to pray for the pastor's kids. So it was just, it was aimed at people in the church. And I was sitting on an airplane flying to a conference at about seven o'clock in the morning. And I thought, you know, I'm going to use this airplane time and I'm going to write this article. I got about 200 words into it and just was completely overwhelmed and had tears running down my cheeks. And I thought, what is going on with me? I don't understand this. And it had sort of opened up this Pandora's box is a very negative connotation. So maybe that's not the right term, but it just, it took the lid off of all of these things that were stored up observations about being a pastor's kid, feeling some anger, some thankfulness, you know, just this blend of, I love where I came from and I hate where I came from kind of all at the same time in some ways. And, and so I just started after I finished the article, I managed to, to get it out there. Um, I started to just try to organize my thoughts. And the more I organized, the more I thought, there's something here for a broader audience. And then I started seeing responses to the article and other pastors' kids going, thank you so much. I've never seen anything uh, speaking to me or speaking about my experience the same way. And so it was just, it was this, this mix of pastors' kids need to have a voice. Pastors need to understand what their kids are going through and I have something to offer in this area. I don't think it's the definitive book, you know. I don't know that any book is the definitive book, but this one is. I hope it is. I hope it is a bridge between pastors and their children, and between their children and God to to help to help make the connections in both relationships in ways that maybe they hadn't been able to because of some of the issues they faced. Well, you've taken a first step. You've done something no one else has done before you in publishing and written a book focused on the pastor's kid, but also with great, uh, I think, wisdom for pastors themselves who have kids and want to relate to them in a good and godly way. So I commend you for doing that, and I pray the book will be a great blessing to both pastor's kids who will pick it up and read it, uh, trying to find uh, uh, some wisdom, and for the, the parents, the, the pastor, the, the, the pastor's wife, who have been given by God this awesome responsibility to bring up these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So God bless you, Barnabas, and the good work you're doing with the ministry grid at Lifeway and all your writing. You write every, everywhere. Your, your byline appears in Leadership Journal, Table Talk, Relevant, Gospel Coalition. I mean, my goodness, you are a gifted writer. That's clear. And so Thank you. I commend you for doing this book, and I hope our paths will cross again someday. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, 
BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.